You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimal of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to the Delirious Nomads podcast, the Blacklight Media podcast where we started out interviewing bands. Now we interview various people around the industry. People seem to like it. It's cool. And I have a really good friend of mine, a person I really admire, my friend Sean Ingram of Merch Table and also Coalesce. How are you, Sean? Good. How are you doing today? I am good. I've had a hectic day, but you know, I'm, I'm glad to <laughs> be talking to you. It's a weekday. Weekday noise hectic. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, this is true. So let's get into it. So, well, how did you get involved in music in the first place? What were you like as a kid? Uh, I was a skater. So everything for me, uh, all roads lead to um, skateboard videos. So me and uh, my good buddy growing up, Dan Askew, who ran Second Nature Records, we went to grade school together. And when we discovered skateboarding, we also discovered punk. So we were basically taping the skateboard parts because we didn't know who any of these bands were. And we didn't even never even went to a record store. And we were just you know, just like basically copying the the audio to these little cassette tapes. And that's what that's that's how we got into music, got into, you know, like all the old Santa Cruz stuff was playing like Dinosaur Jr. and um, Bad Brains yeah. and stuff like that. So and uh, even today, a lot of those songs, when I hear them, I can hear like the, the skateboard grinds and the ollies slaps and, you know, hitting the rails and or, you know, whatever. Uh, because that's just that's just how we grew up with those songs. So when we actually got the records, we thought we were just like in heaven, you know, because, you know, the clarity was there. So but in a nutshell, it was it's skateboarding. Skateboarding is where it got is, is is where is where it came from. So um, and then as we got older and, and met other people, you know, got got cars and let, met met other people in other parts of, you know, neighboring cities, we met people who maybe weren't into skateboarding, but they got into punk other ways and they were playing punk. And so, you know, we just kind of meshed together and just started starting bands. So I got in touch with uh, some guys that were really into straight edge. And my first band was a straight edge band. And then, yeah. And then it just kind of went, went from there. And then how does that, you know, how does playing in bands and you're in Coalesce, you start to have a good amount of success. How does that turn into the merch company? Well, we, like the way that bands make money now is just not how it was back then. Um, the first time I ever saw how much somebody made was when I um, filled in for vocals for Dillinger Skate Plan at this festival back in 01. I just didn't, we didn't know that that's what people were making. So, I mean, we, our first tour we went out for 50 bucks. We got 
paid $50 a show. And um, we had to subsidize all of that with merch sales or um, learning how to eat cheaper. And so first time we went out, we hired a company and we came home in debt. And so I figured out how to screen print. There were these uh, these cool punk girls uh, in the scene, um, Nora and Johanna from Kansas City. And uh, Nora knew how to screen print. And I was like, hey, can you just show me how to burn a screen? And she did. And uh, me and James Deweese, who played the drums in our band at the time, we would screen print these shirts in the, the back of my, our house. And so we were able to get our costs way, 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 way down so that we could eat. And it really was just about eating is what it was like. So I enjoyed it. And then when I got back from the tour, you know, and the band kind of like broke up for the last time or had a long hiatus or whatever, I decided that I wanted to be involved in, in music. And so uh, I'm a wallpaper hanger by trade. So I had my own wallpaper hanging business. And so um, I would moonlight at, at screen printing. And uh, it started with printing for the Appleseed cast. And then we started printing for the Get Up Kids. Then we started printing for, you know, all these other local bands. And they were um, doing good numbers at the time. And so after about two years of working nights, screen printing and wallpapering all day, I was able to quit my uh, wallpaper job and close it down and then um, move over to screen printing full time. And then and then it's just like a million little, you know, I mean, the industry changed all the time. There's always something new going on. So like, then it was just like a million little like milestones of like, well, and then we got this band and then we got that band and then we learned this, you know, and then we got screwed on that. So we learned to do this like that. Um, but yeah, in general, it, the crux of it was we were hungry though. And so first of all, a nice apple seed cast shout out. That's like one of my favorite bands ever. Yeah. 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 Local dudes see them all the time at Chipotle. <laughs> of course. Um, I saw them last summer with, I took a friend and I just, my friend didn't know them, but he just trusted my judgment and he was like, just blown away at how emotionally powerful they are. But so you told me once that sort of the, the turning point for you was motion city soundtrack. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, uh, so our at this point, our company was in a basement in Eudora, Kansas, which is about ten minutes from Lawrence. It was much cheaper at the time, and it wasn't too far for people who lived in Lawrence to kind of drive out to Eudora. And so, I liked being there, obviously, because I could barely afford it. But um, also down the street was uh, Red House, which then later turned into Black Lodge. And that was the recording studio owned by the Get Up Kids and Ed Rose, um, which is, you know, producer that did all sorts of stuff, did uh, did all of our records, too. And so what would happen is Ed would be hanging out with them and the bands would be like, you know, we don't have anything to do. And Ed would be like, we'll go down the street. There's a screen print shop down the street. Uh, Sean from Coalesce is in there and go say hi. And so that's how Motion City Soundtrack, that's how I got that job is those guys literally just walked in my door unannounced one day and they're like, hi, we're, we're the biggest, most hot, you know, band of the moment. Can we just, you know, <laughs> use your business? And so we did. And so that turned into like a probably a get up kid size job, which is nothing to sniff at. It's super big. But then they started getting on the covers of AP and all that stuff. And then that it was a, it was a real it was a real groundbreak for us. So like that's when we entered the world of not just the local screen printer and local bands of like just entering into like, you know, a real business, you know, that had real national reach. And so they were with us for a really, 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 really good long time. And they were great to work with. 
And so that band of that size really brought in those problems of like, we sold, you know, $20,000 worth of merch tonight. We thought this was going to last for two weeks, but it's gone in a night. What are you going to do? So that was the first time that we really encountered that, oh, shit, we screen print 24-7 now, you know, to when these tours are going, you know, and learning how to project for tours and stuff like that. Because, I mean, at Venue now has really made it so simple for bands. But back then, it really, you know, not everybody really had that formula, you know, built out. And so a lot of it was you know, a lot of guesswork. So that really was, I mean, I always, I mean, I always say that like, uh, most city soundtrack is the band that built this company for sure. I mean, they definitely brought us into the, to the bigger, to the bigger world. No, no question about it. And so when you were, what was it like to kind of have to step up to the plate like that with a band at that size and just to be like, Oh, okay. Like, cause that's such a huge radical departure from what you were doing. Well, I think that it just depends on if you if you own the company and you're hungry or not. So like if I was being paid, I probably would be like, cool, good luck. I'm going home. But like when you own the place, you don't have that luxury. You know, you're always looking ahead of like, how do I grow this business? You know, so, you know, and I've worked I've worked all nighters on my band before. So why not work all nighters with, with screen printing? You know what I mean? And and build that up and learn from it and and don't get into that pickle again the next time. You know, to me, it was a lot of um, changing gears, you know, because a lot of the stuff would come to us at like 5 p.m. when you're exhausted and you want to go to bed. Um, so it's a lot of it is just, you know, taking a moment to just readjust yourself and be like, all right, what am I doing here? What do I want to do? Because if you if you can't deliver it, you lose the client. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, again, you know, if you're working for someone, there's a, a work-life balance there you got to think about because, you know, your health is involved. But when you own the company and you're supporting your kids and you're supporting, you know, at that time, probably 10 other employees, you know, then you just, you just have to go for it. You just, you just do. Yeah. You just made it work. Yeah. Yeah. Always have to make it work. And, and then, and then just make sure you don't get in that problem again, you know? Um, and I think that's why it's important to have somebody with experience when you're doing with some of the stuff. It's not so much how many like successes you've had. It's how many failures have you sorted out so that you can avoid you know, in the future, you know, and when you've been doing it as long as we've been doing it, it's just like I, you learn more from those failures than you do from the successes, you know. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like a really, a really crucial piece because it's got to be hectic when you're running a company that has so many bands on tour all of the time. Well, they're not always out all the time, but when they do, like, like if we're talking about the age we're in now, we have partners all over. So, yeah, a lot of merch companies are just a couple couple folks with laptops and they're sourcing stuff and um and they even source the warehousing and you know and they can do that and there's nothing wrong with that because that's how merchandising works i mean that's how business works but we can't come from the production world so we have production facilities on site so that's how we like to keep it um because we can touch it and we can turn around samples and we can you know, yeah. You know, our our team has a real intimate understanding of how screen printing works. All of our customer service reps on the merchant table side, they all started as screen printers, uh, more or less. So, like they under they understand the process from separations to to burning to, you know, mesh counts to all you know all that boring stuff that you know managers you know uh, don't need to be bothered with. You know, they just they just want the t shirt. So, to me, like that's the only way to scale. Um, uh, I. You know, I've seen some people that scaled in such a way to where they just got bigger, bigger buildings and more and more presses. And we have never liked that. 
we've never liked that model because it's very cyclical the way that screen printing works and that production works. If you have a shit January, February, March, which is a lot of times that happens depending on what's going on, you know, sure. that could re- that could really undo your whole year. And so we like to we have we we've established ourselves to where we know what we can output and anything outside of that. We like to work with partners uh, locally and then also East Coast, West Coast, so that, you know, a lot of times if it makes more sense you know, this to save on uh freight to just have our partner in LA, um, you know, and then just have it like, you know, couriered over or, you know, just a million situations. It just gives you a lot more. Um, but of course we like Absolutely. to screen ourselves, but you know, but but that's how that's how we scale when it gets to be too much stuff going on. So what I think is cool about you, right, is that, you know, when we first met, it was via uh I was doing some marketing for dystopia and I caught your attention. And, you know, and so then we, you know, we're doing tank crimes together. And now you and I work together on like legitimate pop stars. Yeah. Was Motion City Soundtrack just the door to those pop stars? Or how did you get into pop star world? The key to that was actually Diplo. Who comes from the hardcore scene, right? He might. He's a super interesting dude. Like he's he's the kind of guy that like, you know, just builds like basketball courts for kids from the hood that he grew up in and stuff. He's just a, he's just a real interesting guy like that. I don't know if he was, but he comes from the the label mad decent. He started that. Yeah. And how that started was, um, our, uh, uh, there's two partners here. Now there's me and my business partner, Jim David, he plays in the band, the anniversary. And he was really, really tight with, uh, his buddy. His name is Kevin Kusatsu. And so, Kevin Kusatsu uh, is from L.A. His father uh, was Mr. Kusatsu, who played in Star Trek in Magnum P.I. And Kevin actually was he worked under Rick Rubin as an intern to learn his trade there in A&R. And so Kevin would always when he when he you know, he would always reference, you know, Jim, you know, in our company when somebody that he was working with at that level needed help. So we were working with sure. Diplo and Major Laser and Mad Decent since the beginning. Um very, 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 okay. very early. That's cool. And, and those and then it turned into those management companies, um, which is um uh teamwork. Then um then you know then Kevin sold teamwork and then but they just you know teamwork still worked with us because they liked our work and um and then we just got more and more folks and then th- so that's how we entered the edm world and then that kind of like transcend to like the more pop stuff you know and it's all managers it's not bands you know yeah, bands yeah. don't really know who we are unless we fuck up you know they don't know who we are but like it's it's really the managers and you know manager can work for major laser one year and then they can work for you know they can work for i don't know charlie xcx or whoever you know the next year, you know, whatever, a, a big pop star. And so, yeah. And so that's really how like turnover works. I think with merch companies is like you, you get merch clients when, uh, when a manager gets a new client and sometimes you lose merch clients when a manager gets fired, you know? And so we kind mm-hmm. of more, more or less follow the managers, not, not, not the bands on a, on a few special occasions, we got to keep the band and grow, um, after a manager got fired. Um, but, um, that's that's an exception to the rule in our experience yeah no that makes sense and it's because i I think that a lot of management companies want things to work within their particular flow well and and it's who they like and who they trust you know what i mean and some of them just are looking are looking for a bargain and that's just not what our company is we're just not a bar we're not like a bargain warehouse you know we have a lot of 
we have a lot of hands-on and a lot of services that are included. You know what I mean? And so, you know, the managers that are like, look, can you just handle all this shit and then pay me at the end of the month? Like that's, those are the types of managers we gel with. But when we have uh, managers that are like, I want you to do nothing. I just want the store to be up. And then I, you know, I don't, I don't want any marketing. I don't want any, anything at all. And we're not going to send anybody there. I just want to go to the store and see that it's still up. Those are usually the managers that don't, don't gel with us too much because we just, you know, there's, there's lots of super cheap places where you can just warehouse your stuff and then just have a a store up, you know what I mean? Whereas like we we're like very proactive about marketing and pushing and, you know, and using tech to, you know, get sales, you know, without having to put a lot of, you know, like do ads and without having to do ads, you know? So, um, yeah. So some managers love that, you know, and some managers like absolutely, are just like they just their, their heads not in merch and so you know and and that's okay you know and so it just kind of goes back and forth you know how do you see you know i feel like the merch market went through a few kind of weird changes during the pandemic how do you see the merch market evolving going forward so i have a lot of thoughts on that but yeah it evolved with the first year which was what was it 19 or 20 so 20 my, my brain's so fried as far as like the years but i'll just say so the first year of the pandemic people were super crazy generous to bands and uh all production ceased we had no there was almost nothing to print that year um but but fans were really awesome about buying out all of the back stock of every single band that we had and it made up for the production it was it was actually a good year the second year nothing happened at all there was that generosity was was fatigued and there still was no production because there was no tours yet so we just kind of languished um and a lot of merch companies did as a matter of fact several of them went out of business i can't remember the names of two of them but um but two two of them went out of business um around that time and then it wasn't until like the end end of the year into the beginning of the following year the third year that bands started you know, going back out and we're allowed to go back out. And um, so that year was just nuts. And so because it was because the production on the tour, like people have been gone for two years. So like people were just going nuts. I think at venue, if I can remember correctly, I think I remember there, they were saying uh, sales were up 18%, which is incredible. Wow. And so um, they, it was just, it was just a lot of money going around as far as like this year, I feel like it's kind of still going there. I think it's still, I think still the tour stuff is doing good. Uh, if you're coming out with something new, if you're coming out with a new record, I mean, that's always going to push your cycle. You know, we have some like, kind of like, you know, legacy type bands and acts. I mean, and we work for estates for people that aren't even alive anymore. Sure. Um, but as long as you're putting something new out, you know, it's, it's still cooking. So like that, and that stuff is all, all staggered, you know, um, and out of our control, but like, yeah, I think it's still going as far as moving forward. I do not think Amazon is the future managers and marketing people constantly tell me that we need to be in Amazon. We need to do all this. I, I just don't believe that. I think the platform is severely flawed when you can put up something for your client and 15 minutes later, uh, China has come in and bootlegged it and is selling it for $10. Um, with print on demand, um, you have to compete against that stuff. Uh, it just it doesn't make any sense to create 
a store or an environment where you are actually have to compete against counterfeit. I think that's the first and foremost, most ridiculous thing. Um, and then also there's just no, there's just no, there's no margin to share there. I mean, look, it takes my people time to mess and put that thing together. And then Amazon wants the same amount, you know, when you're doing like fulfilled by Amazon, when you're doing like a high quality thing, the other option they have is just print on demand. Have you ever sought out a print on demand t-shirt? Have you ever sought out? No, it sucks. It always sucks. I'm sure it will catch up and it will be good in time and stuff, but like, it's just low quality and it's still, it's still expensive. So, and the fans who buy that sort of thing aren't really, it's very rarely like a devout music fan who buys that I've noticed. Well, uh, one of the guys that works here, he's a huge nine inch nails fan, you know, and he knows how to screen print and he understands the merch company. He ordered it and he got one and it was print on, it was a, it was like an inkjet print on demand deal. Um, and so he went to, uh, some Reddit forum and he was reading that people were seeing it too, you know, and like, they were saying that, Hey, this is really not, this isn't what I paid for. You know, these are not cheap shirts. They're still in the 40 range. And then you get in this print thing. I know why managers want it. They want to reduce overhead and all of that. And they don't want to market and they don't want to. And they want to have diversity of product. Well, some of the stuff it works, you know, like if you're doing a mug or if you're doing, or if you're doing some of those weird kind of those sublimation things and stuff, but if we're talking like Nuts and bolts, t-shirts, like a screen print is always going to be your highest quality. And it's just, I don't see how you can do that with Amazon unless major changes uh, happen over there. But I've had no shortage of marketing managers and marketing people being like, look, look, we need to be in the sales channel. People need to buy that. And like, um, I'm just not convinced because you know what, when I order my vitamins, you know, for the week or for the month, you know, that I can't find locally, I'm never shopping for tool. I'm never shopping for, you know, bad brains. You know what I mean? It's when I see a really sick collaboration between bad brains and Santa Cruz skateboards that's targeted to me or whatever. It's not the sales, it's not the sales channel. It's the thing. It's the thing that they're making that makes you want it. Yeah. The igloo coolers that are doing the collabs with like Stranger Things or or, you know, stuff like that. It's the thing that you make. It's not just putting it on Amazon that makes it desirable. It's like I don't think I don't think anybody cares. And I could be totally wrong. And there's probably a merch guy listening to this that's like, no, you're an idiot. I make a bazillion dollars off of this. But like we've yet we've yet to find anything uh, uh, worthwhile. So I don't think that's the the future. I do think multiple sales channels is the future for sure. But um, in places where you can have a little bit more control, we've had crazy success with Bandcamp. People who love a platform will absolutely you know, pay whatever the percentage fee that they ask for to use that platform. Bandcamp is one of the few, few places where uh, they charge you money to be in their store um, and they don't handle any of it. They don't do anything with it, but fans just want to use that. And so they've, that's telling me that Bandcamp's done an incredible job of creating a, a, a platform that people love. Does anybody love Amazon? Do you love Amazon? You know, has anyone ever been like, oh, I just, I just can't wait to order, you know, these mothballs from Amazon. It's just a, it's like a, it's like a tool, you know what I mean? Whereas like merchandise and stuff doesn't, I don't, I don't feel fits in with that. I feel like when, when you're buying something from a band, it's like you're, you know, it's like, it needs more of a personal connection. That's, that's, that's what we see. And that's what we 
recommend people do when they're doing like social ads is like wear the shirt you know what i mean it's like be whatever the thing you're selling have it in the picture let us make you samples let us send you a thing you know don't just send a link let's you know connect yourself with it so that i think is always going to be the future um and i think that just making things to where they're just easier to buy to where you're not even seeing to where you're not even seeing the the platform like for instance like in uh like how Shopify has the Spotify direct connect. Yeah. It's just, you click, on, you click on the thing. It already knows who you are and you bought it. You didn't, you didn't go to a website. You just, you just saw the thing and you hit buy. I think, I think when things are just literally one click, I think that's, that's going to be the future, but that's more of like, going to be in a card processing card processing, you know, world more than like a merch world. But um, sure. That, that's, that's where I see it. And I think that's definitely the advantage I mean, the two advantages of Amazon, as I see them, are uh, A, the fact that I can just like click buy now and then it'll just show up in my house. I didn't have to think about it beyond that, which is essentially what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think also for uh, vinyl, it's a lot harder to knock off, especially if you're trying to do a bootleg. Like with some of like the more niche labels I do, like nobody's trying to bootleg like a, a German neo folk album, you know? Because it just it costs a lot more than bootlegging a shirt. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I've never bought vinyl off Amazon. I mean, neither have I. But I'm just saying, I know that it's a big sales channel. Yeah. Actually, I take that back. I did. I bought Fear Inoculum off of... Because that's the only place they were selling it. That's where, when the when the release of that Tool album came out, that was, they used that exclusively. That was such a wild release. Yeah, and, and how it came out was really weird, too. So... um but I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think it's a pretty divisive opinion to some people because, like I said, some managers are just like, nope. And I always tell them, I'll do whatever you want. I'll totally do whatever you want. But this is this is what we're going to find. Um, and and we've done the whole gamut. I've had full warehouse rack space des designated to sending the stuff ourselves. And then we also did the FBA forum, you know, uh, the fulfilled by Amazon, and then spent thousands of dollars to have them literally destroy the merchandise because the storage fees were so incredible. It was just, it was just, you know, eating so much money. Um, and so the print on demand thing is the latest thing that they've come up with. Um, and that's probably good for some folks, but like, just as far as like kind of what we're seeing, it's not amazing. And it doesn't look like the future to me unless something radical changes. As sort of a final query on this front, you know, so we're talking about platforms you buy merch on, what about the merch itself? What do you see makes a merch design work and generate uh, desire? Well, not crowding your launch. First and foremost, not putting out 80,000 pieces. I think it really comes down to solid design work too. Just putting a logo or a name on it probably isn't isn't uh, as effective as when some you can tell someone actually put some thought into their stuff. We just launched the JPEG in um, Danny Brown collab. Yeah, it's called Scare the Hose, and um, if you look at the merch on it, it's like amazing. It's like they put so much work into it, and so it did incredible. It just did incredible. I mean, you know, and you don't need a million colors, and you don't need the most expensive blank, but you know, having a, a modern blank that people know, I think, is important first and foremost, and then just making sure the design is not phoned in. You know, uh, we've had clients that have done really huge launches and then they just come back with a counterfeit launch, you know, to where it's just like, you know, uh, a cleaner or a, a toothpaste or whatever. And they just made that logo, but they replaced the name with the band. 
um, and it didn't it didn't do well. And so, um, and again, that also comes down to like when the marketing came, did the band wear the thing in the picture, or did he just like yeah. show, show a picture of it? So, um, and that's another thing too is like this is all of this is worthless if you're not going to talk about your merch, if you're, if your band's not yeah. doing this, it's like, you know, it's, it's pointless. So for me, the first line, the first marketing line is, is you need to post about it on socials. You don't need to go nuts and keep talking about it, you know, but you can, but make one solid post, not a, like a, a static post and, um, and then wait a couple of weeks and then let's start looking at ads. And so, you know, to maximize it, you know, but, um, our experience too is that we fully integrated with Clavio. Uh, Merch Table is its own custom um, platform. We're we're not a Shopify uh, reseller, even though we are integrated into Shopify. But like we uh, we went with Clavio, which is uh, which has been really genius in like allowing us to automate all of our marketing. So um, you know, collecting those emails on the front end, not ju- not just the back end. And anytime anything new comes out an email is automatically generated. The look and feel is already done and it just goes out. Hey, this is what's new, you know? And those things really, 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 really work and produce, you know, sales. So I think things like that have been like really important, you know, to just make the marketing easier. And then when you start doing your meta ads, which seems to be all that's left, is that, you know what I mean? Then you can, you know, you can, you don't have to go nuts on them. You know, you don't have to yeah. be like, Hey, I need a $2,000 spends. Like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's back that up a little bit. So, you know, and, and you know, this and, and your listeners uh, don't know this, but we've, we had something recently. What do we spend? What was it? We spent like a thousand dollars and we grossed 13 grand. On yeah. That sounds right. Releases. And it was nuts. Absolutely not. I mean, that's it, it's incredible. I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't want to do that? Just keep spending that all day long. But um, but um, but yeah. But the automated stuff, I feel like, is is one of the most important things too. But as far as like what makes one shirt cooler than the other, that's always going to be the band that's making it, right? So, um, but as far but as far as like if we're doing apples to apples, like putting thought into it and then actually putting thought into following through, to me, are are the two most important things. Yeah. There you go. Well, let's um leave it there. But thank you so much for your time, Sean, for getting so uh, insightful with it. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, man. All right. So that was awesome. Thank you, everyone out there for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love 
want to love or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Mo, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Again.